Shizukasaya Iwani Shimi Iru Semino Koe Ah, the stillness penetrating into the rocks. A cicada's chirp. This is Philosophy for the People. I'm your host, Nathan Wiley, here with producer Jessica Cook. Today we discuss philosophies of nothingness with Dr. Girion Kopf. Dr. Kopf is a professor of East Asian religions and philosophy of religion, as well as the chair of the religion department at Luther College. As a research fellow of the Japan Foundation and the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, he conducted research at Obirin University in Machida, Japan, and at the Nanzan Institute for Religion and Culture in Nagoya, Japan. During the academic year 2008 to 2009, he taught at the Center of Buddhist Studies, University of Hong Kong. From 2013 to 2014, he was a visiting lecturer at Saitama University and a visiting researcher at Toyo University. He is the author of Beyond Personal Identity, the co editor of Merlu Ponty and Buddhism, and the editor of the Journal of Buddhist Philosophy. He also contributes a series of essays on Japanese Buddhism to BuddhistDoor.net. His latest editorial accomplishment is a groundbreaking collection of essays titled The Tao Companion to Japanese Buddhist Philosophy. He is currently developing a non essentialist philosophy of mind and an ethics based on a non essentialist. Conception of identity formation. Dr. Kopp, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me. Professor, you may have recognized the haiku poem with which I opened. It's regarded as one of the best by the famous Japanese poet Matsuo Basho, who lived from 1644 to 1694. Like many of Basho's poems, it's a perfect example of the Buddhist notion of the form of the formless, blending distinctionless silence with the distinctive presence of the insect's chirp. And it is, I think, an apt expression, a poetic expression, of what philosophers such as yourself, Professor, might refer to as a non essentialist understanding of self and world. Or, what Buddhists of the Mahayana tradition call the way of emptiness. And it is with this principle of non essentialism that I would like to begin our conversation. 
However, I want to approach this notion of non-essentialism from a specific standpoint, and that is the standpoint of something called global philosophy, which is one of your areas of interest and expertise. What is the significance of developing non-essentialist perspectives on some of today's most pressing philosophical issues in the context of global philosophy? This is the question I want to pose as a point of entry into today's topic, but Professor, perhaps a good place to begin is with first presenting for myself and for our listeners what exactly goes on under the rubric of global philosophy. Uh, thank you very much for your question. Um, I think that's an exciting place to start. So in order to get to the notion of global philosophy, I would like to step a little bit back and look at how philosophy developed. Um, philosophy obviously comes from the Greek, philosophia, um, the, the, the friend of wisdom or the love for wisdom, right? And so it was developed within the European tradition and it went through a couple of transformations and mostly the, the notion of philosophy that, that we are using, um, especially in academic settings, today is, was formed within the, the modern period um, in Europe, mostly um, between the 17th and the 20th century. And then in the 20th century, we have a split within um, the academic discipline of philosophy in Europe in what is now called continental philosophy and Anglo-American philosophy. So we have um, a split in two kinds of discipline, ones that, um, that focuses more on the experience of the subject, and that's the continental philosophy. You have um, the 19th century German philosophers that develop um, through an analysis of subjectivity a larger systems, and then in the larger philosophical systems, and then you have we have in at the beginning of the 20th century, the phenomenological movement started with by Edmund Husserl. And um, phenomenology is an analysis of the phenomena of how we experience reality. So not of reality itself, but of our experience of reality. On the other hand, we have analytical philosophy that starts with an analysis of language and then um, progresses slowly into um, analyzing our argument structures, um, developing lo formal logic, and um, developing, uh, developing a philosophical analysis based on a focus on, on, on argumentation. So this is, um, not, if you talk about um, sort of philo academic philosophy in the 20th century, so this is the starting point of when, when we look at the philosophical departments in the mid 20th century. What happens then in the mid 20th century is that um, philosophers in Europe and the United States and the places they had, they exported continental and analytical philosophy to, like for example, Japan, where academic philosophy was exported to in the 19th century. You have sort of, um, a recognition that there is philosophical thinking outside of Europe and the and North America. 
So in that context, we have a development of the discipline of comparative philosophy. Comparative philosophy is called such because it tries to, to in some sense, compare and dialogue um, philosophies from Europe or North America, resp respectively, with philosophies from other parts of, of the globe, and especially South and East Asia. So there's, it's very interesting then you have in those development of the um, discipline of comparative philosophy and the philosophy department of the University of Hawaii was really involved in that um, with the East-West Center. So philosophy, comparative philosophy was then seen as an East and West dialogue, um, West meaning the Anglo-American um, realm and continental Europe, but, but by continental Europe, mostly what was re referred to was mostly the Greek and Latin philosophical tradition that people then thought found its expression in, in mostly French, French and German philosophy. And now those systems were then compared or applied to um, philosophical thought in South and East Asia. So people first thought that they would recognize philosophical thinking in India, and then later also in China and Japan, and more recently then also you're talking about indigenous philosophies when you talk about African philosophies, when you talk about Native American philosophies in both um, North, but also Central and South America. And then of course, Given the political situation that um, we are finding ourselves and we have found ourselves in over the past hundred years is um, whether where Islam was sort of sidetracked. So, but now we also start including um, Islamic philosophy into those debates. So what happens now is that um, within the umbrella of comparative philosophy, philosophical methods that were developed in Europe and, the, and North America were applied to those traditions outside of Europe and North America, refer to the global South or the East, right? And so then uh, there's, for example, one article that really stuck out to me when I was a grad student in which um, a very well-intended philosopher was analyzing Nagarjuna and came to the conclusion, in conclusion that since Nagarjuna says something that is sort of comparable to Derrida, we can call him a philosopher. And I had problems with that because Nagarjuna who wrote, firstly, I like Derrida, but Nagarjuna wrote um, some 17th, 18th centuries prior to, to Derrida. He doesn't need the justification of Derrida to be um, recognized as philosopher. So now we are talking about global philosophy. Firstly, the first step is that recognizing that there are multiple philosophical traditions and multiple ways of doing philosophy. And then I take that as a step further with um, what I call multi-entry philosophies to, to say, okay, now we have philosophers from different contexts, cultural contexts, from different traditions, and they all bring their method with them to, our, to the table, to the proverbial table where the philosophers sit and discuss, right? 
And but now we are not privileging analytical, meaning Anglo-American philosophy or continental philosophy anymore. Now we are actually trying to find an even playing field in which um, the Yoruba philosopher um, has the same is on the same level as an analytical philosopher or a Chinese philosopher talks to to a continental philosopher, and they are both engaging on the same level so that no method is privileged. So a multi-entry philosophy, which for me is um, an expression of that global philosophy, a multi-entry philosophy is a philosophy that treats all conversations partner equally, and then we are not using only analytical philosophy to understand Yoruba philosophy, but we also use Yoruba philosophy to understand analytical philosophy. Yes, you write in that article that to be fruitful, a philosophical inquiry will invite a multiplicity of approaches, listen to their language, understand their standpoints, and discern their contribution to the specific inquiry, as well as to the philosophical project in general. And also in this article, which by the way, is titled Emptiness, Multiverse, and the Conception of a Multi-Entry Philosophy, you challenge the assumptions that are pervasive in academic philosophy today that to every philosophical question, the philosophical inquirer can and will find one correct way of answering and then one correct answer, while alternative options are deemed untenable or inconsistent. As an alternative, as you've mentioned, to these rather narrow academic approaches, you present what you call a blueprint borrowed from the Buddhist tradition for, as you've mentioned, a multi-entry approach to philosophy. What are some of the sources for this blueprint, and why is a multi-entry approach important to the ongoing practice of global philosophy? All right, so those are those are two questions. So um, let's start with my sources. Um, in general, I have three main sources. I have, um, when we talk about traditions, um, from the Chinese Buddhist tradition, the idea of intras nets in Huayin um, Buddhist philosophy. Um, the idea of intras net is that that Buddha's mind, which is seen as the sort of the universal mind that uh, Buddha understands everything, um, perceives the world through the eyes of every sentient beings. And, but this Buddha mind is expressed in a net and the interest net is a net where at every intersection you have um, little diamonds that in which the whole net is reflected in itself. So this has two relationships. First is that the, the universal mind is reflected in the individual mind. At the same time, all individual minds are reflected in the other infinite individual minds. So what that does is, is it, 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 it um, creates strong intimate relationships between the universal and the individual and among the individual. And the Huayen philosophers, um, especially Chen Guan, um, whom I think I mentioned in that article, um, have tried to um, find, have tried to formalize that understanding of of intrasnet um, in those the the view of the four dharma worlds. The first um, is the dharma world of the the in the 
which is sometimes translated as the phenomena, then the second one would be the noumena, which is the, the, the Chinese world actually means universal principle. And the third Dharma world is the, the unhindered interpenetration of individual and universal. And the fourth Dharma world is the unhindered interpenetration of individual and individual. So this is my first source, is um, classical Huayan um, philosophy. My second source, obviously, is um, Japanese philosophy. And um, the two philosophers that I focus on are um, Nishida, actually, and his disciple Mutai, Mutai Risaku, but also um, Dogen. Um, Dogen is very important for me, but um, since Dogen wrote in the 12th century, and um, Nishida and I share a lot of books that we both read, so it actually it's it's much easier for me to 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 engage Nishida since he read German philosophy um, and some Chinese and Japanese classics. I read German philosophy and some Chinese and Japanese classics, so we do have sort of a similar background. But what I the concept that I really like from Dogen is the um, Dotoku is which is literally translated as as grasping the, the Tao, is grasping the way. And, but actually, the, the way, when in the fascicle in the Shobogenzo, in which um, Dogen introduces that concept, which is also called Dotoku, he starts off um, alluding to something most people know about Zen Buddhism, the dialogue between Zen masters and disciples that are canonized in the encounter, so-called encounter dialogues, also known as koans or gongan in Chinese. And so Dogen says, in those encounter between master and disciple, where the disciple proves his or her state of awareness to the master, the master can assess the understanding of the disciple. This interaction Dogen identifies as dotoku. And so since grasping the way doesn't really make a lot of sense for us in English, I translate it as, as actually um, quite a few scholars as expression. So the individual disciple then expresses his or her level of attainment, level of awareness, either verbally or non-verbally. Um, I'm sure a lot of um, the listeners are familiar with those sense stories of what's the sound of one hand clapping or um, a disciple comes and says to the master, um, master, please teach me how to become enlightened. And the master said, have you eaten? The disciple says, yes, I'm ready. And the master says, please wash the dishes, right? So in those actions, the disciple also expresses and what, what is, ex is, is expressed is something that Nishida then um, formulates quite nicely at what he called the dialectical, the fourfold dialectical world, that in the individual awareness or activity or, or the words that we use, not only the individual is expressed, but also Buddha nature in Dogen's terms, meaning the universal, the cosmos, but also as the Huayen philosophy that I introduced earlier, um, communicates to us every other individual throughout space and time is expressed in every individual action or elocution. So this is the second um, puzzle for me to this 
multi-entry philosophy is Dogen's concept of dotoku of expression. The third puzzle is from Europe is um, in A Thousand Plateaus by Deleuze and Guattari, they um, introduced the rhizomatic model where they say the causality doesn't have, it's, it's not linear. Um, when you talk about structures, there's no beginning and an end. There's just a lot of interconnection and where they actually sort of um, introduce a philosophical model of interconnectedness and connectivity. And and that's for me the image that actually how philosophy should work. When when we write philosophy books, when we take philosophy classes, when we think philosophy, we also imply that there's one narrative, one way of understanding the world, right? Um, and that every every book, every class has a beginning and it has an end, so sort of a linear movement, right? And it's this idea of uh, what Francois Leo Tarkov's grand narrative or this idea of a linearity that, that I challenge with it, multi-entry philosophy. And um, again, um, Dogen said in, in, um, in the fascicle Gensho Koan, when one side is illuminated, another side is obscured. So I think this is really important for me is that, that every philosophy, even the best philosophy doesn't explain everything. It just highlights one thing and ignores, obviously for practicality, say, um, other things. So we need that multiplicity of approaches, of views to get the complete puzzle. And this is what I think um, multi-entry philosophy is supposed to do. And I, I think it can work, but we are at the beginning of that. We are right now a group we formed at the American Academy of Religion. We are called the Seminar of Global Critical Philosophy of Religion, where we actually practice that. Um, next month, we have a workshop where we try to practice that multi-entry philosophy. We have people from different tradition, um, not only presenting, but also engaging each other from their own perspective. Yes, again, the title of the article is Emptiness Multiverse and the conception of a multi-entry philosophy. So multi-entry philosophy takes multiverse theory as its sort of cosmological correlate. That's correct. And as you observe, along with Encytings and Master Dogen, the multiverse is constantly changing and at any given time is embodied in multiple manifestations. And since you asked me for my sources, so I have to not, not to forget my, my colleague, um, Brock Ciprin, um, who provided the term multiverse for me in his, um, in his book. And I'm blanking on the title right now when he talks about uh, omnicentrism. And when he uses the word multiverse to again say, um, because he thinks, and I agree with him, that the concept of the universe, again, implies a beginning and an end and sort of one development, one narrative. And so this is challenged by the notion of the multiverse. Interesting. Omnicentrism. That is an interesting and I think also a very apt term. Uh, let's talk Japanese Buddhist philosophy. Sure. All three of these terms imply distinctions. And here I'm about to embark on an exercise of approaching the question, what is Japanese philosophy, by applying what I understand to be something of a Japanese Buddhist philosophical method or logic to thinking about this question. Mm -hmm. And so, Professor, let me give this a shot, and then I'll ask you how I've done. 
you can assess the understanding of the disciple here. So all three of these terms, Japanese, Buddhist, philosophy, imply distinctions. Japanese as opposed to, say, Chinese or European or American. Buddhist as opposed to, say, Christian or Shinto or Confucian. And philosophy as opposed to, say, religion or art or science. And yet, it is only and precisely by virtue of these implied distinctions that Japanese Buddhist philosophy can be said to name something determinate in contemporary discourse. Just like a book is only a book insofar as it is distinguished from a journal or a pamphlet, so too there is something called Buddhism in contemporary discourse only insofar as it's not Confucianism or Taoism or Christianity. But then this raises a further point of interest, namely, to the extent that each of these three terms, Japanese, Buddhist, and philosophy, are constituted in contemporary discourse in and through such contrasts and distinctions, they are also in a certain sense necessarily inhabited by those terms from which they are distinguished and contrasted. So, for example, if a book can be defined only through analytical distinction from that which is non-book, a letter, a turtle, a cup of coffee, or whatever, then the term book is essentially what it is only negatively as that which is not a non-book. Japanese Buddhist philosophy is what it is only by virtue of not being what it is not. It is essentially null, or rather, we can say that it is in itself empty, and in its emptiness it becomes a sort of placeholder for, and again in a certain sense inhabited by, everything which it is not, resulting in a contradiction of identity. A is A because it is not A. A book is a book because it is not a book. Japan is Japan because it is not Japan. Philosophy is philosophy because it is not philosophy. Consequently, whatever impression these terms may have on you, whether Japan evokes an impression of tranquil temples and tea houses or the boisterous streets of Shinjuku, that impression becomes incorporated into the self-identity of what Japan is because the term Japan is itself, as I've just tried to establish, essentially empty. Or to put it paradoxically, it is essentially non-essential. It is nothing, and therefore it is everything. Japanese Buddhist philosophy is a turtle reading a book while sipping a cup of coffee. So there's my attempt, Professor, at uh, approaching the question, what is Japanese philosophy by in employing a logic or method that might be characteristic of the larger Buddhist tradition of which Japanese Buddhist philosophy is a part, uh, call it a logic of emptiness. So how have I done here? Does my argument hold up? What are some other ways of expressing an argument like this? And what are some of the classical Buddhist sources for these types of arguments? Firstly, um, I'm very impressed with your, um, what you call argument. Um, I'm saying what, what you call argument, not, be, not because I'm doubting that it is an argument, but um, because um, I'm sure that certain logicians trained in, in, in analytical philosophy may have stepped back once you got into the second part of it. <laughs> 
So, and I think that's a very important point that, is, that from my perspective is that, that logic always requires a standpoint. And then from that standpoint, that logic um, makes sense and can be um, worked through consistently. And from no standpoint or from all standpoint, one's particular logic cannot be worked consistently. And this is actually why um, Buddhists and especially Japanese Buddhist philosophers use terms that, yeah, that confuse people who are trained in formal logic and analytical philosophy. So my first response to um, how you did, I think you, you did great. It, 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 I really enjoyed listening to you. And you actually went through the Buddhist history. The first part was pretty much um, um, a translation of Madhyamika philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, then you moved into Suzuki's reading of the, the Diamond Sutra, the A is not A, therefore it's A. Right? Yes, the logic of Sokuhi. Exactly. And then in the third step, you um, you ended up at a very... Um, I don't want to necessarily use the word popular, but a very common tr- interpretation of Nishida um, in, 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 in the sense that, that, um, that logic or the terminology is necessary. I mean, you, you alluded to his concept that's a mouthful of the, the absolute contradictory self-identity, right? And that means that the individual includes all, right? And therefore, all is everything, um, everything and everything is nothing. So this is a very common um, reading of, of Nishida. So th- the three sources that I see um, working through through your argument is first um, um, Nagarjuna's working through the, his most famous book is the Mula Matyamika Karikas versus examining the middle way. The second one, um, um, I think I saw the logic of Sokuhi, Suzuki's logic of Sokuhi. And I think it's important to, to recognize that because even though he, he develops that in his commentary on the Diamond Sutra, I don't think that the Diamond Sutra actually does what he thinks it does. The Diamond Sutra is, is um, much more a linguistic um, subversion of language that we use. And Suzuki then inspired by that using the, the Japanese reading of those two Chinese characters, Soku and Sokuhi, develops his own idea of the, what he calls the logic of, of Sokuhi. Actually, I think that's, that's a much more of an achievement. It's not, Suzuki is not reading it from somewhere, it's actually developing his own thought. And then the last, the last one, I think, is, is, is Nishida's trying to work out, trying to translate um, Cheng Guan and Fatsang's um, Huayan philosophy into the language of, of early 20th century um, European continental philosophy. So those are the sources um, which, which I think, which I see in, in, um, in your argument, in your analysis. And so I want to talk a little bit about, if that's okay, about the... The A is not A, and um, the notion of difference, and then how we get from difference to to everything is nothing and nothing is everything, right? It seems to be a stretch. And um, I would like to take as an example the way you started the term Japanese Buddhist philosophy. 
So for the fingers that I work with, um, which are, again, mostly Dogen and Ishida, um, difference is not a bad thing. Um, difference is actually something that is, is the basic characteristic of the phenomenal world. Right? So there is no problem saying Japanese philosophy or Buddhist philosophy or philosophy and not poetry or, or ritual, right? So the, again, it's really important to note, I think for Dogen, but also for Nishida, difference is one of the basic characteristic of the phenomenal world, the world we, ex, we, we live in, the world we experience. The problem is not with recognizing difference. The problem is with essentializing difference. And the term essence, um, if you use it in English, obviously comes from the European tradition. Um, Aristotle talked about substances. He made the distinction between substance and accidents. Um, between that is what is what is necessary for uh, uh, for an entity, and, and and accidents are the ones through which we know an entity. This concept of substance was then redefined by Descartes and um, Spinoza and Leibniz, um, who then actually developed an essentialism. <laughs> and for um, Descartes, a substance is that which exists by itself. So it's a causally independent entity. That means as an essence is something that is absolutely different from everything else and is, exists only by itself and is known only by itself. So this is Descartes' definition of substance. And then I think, and I get this from Nishida, I don't know if I get this from Nishida, but Nishida pushes that idea is that the two basic examples of essentialism are Spinoza and Leibniz. Spinoza who says there's only one essence, God, nature, it's one essence, there's, and everything else is part of it, right? And Leibniz says, no, 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 we're all individual essence, but since we are causally independent, we, we can't communicate with each other. We are all what he calls windowless monads. And I think Nishida's um, most interesting article is called Chikaku Nitsuite um, on self-awareness, in which he develops his own concept, is, which he calls, and, and we can argue if that's a good choice of world, the absolute contradictory self-idea, vis-a-vis um, Spinoza and Leibniz. And he says Spinoza got the oneness right, and the Leibniz got the individuality of the the manifold, the many individuals, right? <laughs> Both made the mistake of essentializing Spinoza, of essentializing the nature and God, and Leibniz of essentializing the individual. So that's where I come in with the word non-essentialism. Within the Buddhist tradition, the Buddhists, obviously, Nagarjuna and the early Buddhists, um, responded to the concept of svabhava in, in Hinduism, which means self-nature and pretty much works similar to Spinoza's um, substance. And so within Buddhism, so from the very beginning, you have the whole the tendency to, to argue against the notion of essence, which again, and that was how emptiness was coined, um, emptiness is the rejection of svabhava, of self-nature. That means the philosophy of emptiness rejects the notion that things are, have an identifiable, unchanging essence that is completely different from everything else. So it rejects permanence. It rejects um, the notion of, our, of, of being as 
completely separate from non-being. And I, I think that it's important to, to realize when people talk about um, emptiness and Buddhists talk about emptiness, they are actually not advocating nihilism. Nishitani has a great, actually, response to nihilism, um, which has been translated um, into, into English. And so what I think those, those guys are arguing is for non-essentialism. So to go back, yes, um, as you said, um, and I apologize if I don't paraphrase you correctly, you said something to the effect um, because what we call Japan is also non-Japanese, therefore what we, we call it Japan, right? And the way I would say that is from one perspective, it is Japanese, but from a different perspective, it is not Japanese. There are certain um, cultural traits in Japan, but um, they are not essentially different from something else, right? They, are, they may be um, provisionally different, and that gets us back to the notion of difference. Difference, according to Buddhists, is always provisional, right? So there's the rejection of making those absolute eternal statements. So what Nishida ultimately criticizes in in Spinoza is that notion that he looks at the world from the perspective of eternity, right? And I think this is, um, I think this is the key here is that um, when we talk of when we make distinction, when we identify things, we realize that, that those identifications are made at a specific place at a specific time from a specific perspective, but they will change. The perspective will change, the time will change, the place will change. Therefore, the notion of essence is not tenable. And therefore, we have those people, including myself, then advocating for non-essentials. You mentioned Aristotle and Spinoza and Leibniz in reference to substance metaphysics and essentialism. And you showed very nicely how Nishida responds to these philosophers and exposes the essentializing tendencies of Spinoza and Leibniz. I have a book in my hand right now. It's a dog-eared copy of my personal favorite book by a Japanese philosopher. That book is Religion and Nothingness by Keiji Nishitani. Professor, you... Mm -hmm just referenced uh, Nishitani and his book on nihilism, The Self-Overcoming of Nihilism, which was written before this one. And I can't resist taking this opportunity to share one of my favorite passages from this book. And it's one that when I read it, uh, I had already earned a, a bachelor's degree in philosophy, having written my senior thesis on a topic in Aristotle. But when I read this passage from Nishitani's Religion and Nothingness, I was living in Japan reading the Kyoto School philosophers and puzzling over their distinctive ways of expressing this logic of nothingness. And when I hit this passage in Nishitani, it kind of clicked for me, really for the first time, something like a flash of insight. And so I can't resist seizing this opportunity to share this passage with the listeners, especially since Nishitani here explicitly references Aristotle's substance metaphysics and essentialism as a foil for the argument he makes. So, Professor, you covered Spinoza and Leibniz. I'll cover here through Nishitani, Aristotle. But this passage is a couple of pages long, so bear with me. I th really think it's worth reading in full, though. 
So after citing Aristotle by name, Nishitani argues the following. Let us say a child is making fire in the yard. There is a fire out there. Its substance comprises what the fire is, what keeps it from being something else. What distinguishes the fire from the ground, the grill, the tongs, the firewood stacked nearby, and so forth, what brings about the unique properties of fire, namely the power and activity of combustion, may be said to form the substance of fire. It points to the mode of being of fire in itself. In this case, however, the mode of being of the scene itself is clearly grasped in the form under which it displays itself to us, and thus also to the extent that we recognize it as such. The substance of fire is the form, and here Nishitani clarifies parenthetically that by form he means the classical Greek notion of eidos, E-I-D-O-S, which in Aristotle means essence or type or species. Fire here displays itself, Nishitani continues, and displays itself to us. This is its eidos. Only on such an eidetic field can we distinguish fire from anything else and recognize its unique properties of combustion. Furthermore, this field enables us to classify intellectually and to analyze scientifically the process involved in combustion, and thereby to demonstrate what fire is, that is, what its substance is. If we grant this as the definition of fire, then combustion may be said to represent a constitutive element in the core content of the definition, the so-called specific difference of fire. In any case, substance is presented here in terms of logos, as something that can be explained in terms of logical structures or interpreted theoretically. Substance, as we have indicated, he continues, represents the point at which a thing preserves its self-identity. Substance indicates what a thing is in itself only to the extent of the eidetic form in which the thing discloses itself to us. But if this is so, what is the thing's mode of being completely apart from this disclosure to us? In my view, the key to this question is contained in something that has been present in the Eastern mind since ancient times. We find it expressed in such phrases as, fire does not burn fire, water does not wash water, the eye does not see the eye. The saying that fire does not burn fire refers, of course, to the self-identity of fire. But this is not the self-identity of fire as quote-unquote substance viewed from a standpoint at which we view fire as an object. It is rather the self-identity of fire as fire in itself, on its own home ground, the self-identity of fire to fire itself. Now, what does Nishitani mean by the self-identity of fire to fire itself? This is for me where I experienced the aha moment in the last two paragraphs of this passage. It is the same when we say that water does not get wet or that the eye does not look at itself. In the sense that fire is something incapable of burning fire, the words fire does not burn fire speak of the essential being of fire. 
That a fire has been kindled and is burning brightly means that the fire does not burn itself. That it insists on being itself and existing as what it is. In this fact of fire not burning itself, therefore, the essential being and actual being of fire are one. These words express the self-identity of fire, the self-identity of fire in itself on its own home ground. They point directly to the selfness of fire. And now the final paragraph and the payoff. This is fundamentally different from the case in which substance is considered to denote the selfness of fire. Here, the term self-identical could never mean substance. Substance denotes the self-identity of fire that is recognized in its defining activity, namely combustion, the mode of being in which fire is actually burning and actually fire. On the contrary, the assertion that we are making here, that fire does not burn fire, indicates the fact of the fire's not burning, an action of non-action. The selfness of fire expressed in the fact that fire does not burn itself implies the complete negation of that self-identity. If we suppose that the natural, essential quality, or in Buddhist terms, self-nature, resides in the power and activity of combustion, then the selfness of fire resides at the point of its so-called non-self-nature. In contrast to the notion of substance, which comprehends the selfness of fire in its fire nature, and thus as being, the true selfness of fire is its non-fire nature. The selfness of fire lies in non-combustion. Of course, this non-combustion is not something apart from combustion. Fire is non-combustive in its very act of combustion. It does not burn itself. To withdraw the non-combustion of fire from the discussion is to make combustion, in truth, unthinkable. That fire sustains itself while it is in the act of burning means precisely that it is not burning itself. Combustion has its ground in non-combustion. Because of non-combustion, combustion is combustion. The non-self nature of fire is its home ground of being. The same could be said of water. It washes because it does not wash itself. This is a beautiful passage from Nishitani. Um, Nishitani actually rejected um, Nishida's overuse of absolute nothingness and went back to the traditional Buddhist term emptiness. And what it bring, what the, the passage that you read us brings out is, is the idea is that fire is dependent on non-fire, meaning that the fire is dependent on, on, on an other, on something outside. And this is, of course, within the Buddhist framework. This is called Pratitya Samutpada, codependent arising. And this is the other side of emptiness. And emptiness then means that, that the, the notion of svabhava or self-nature or substance of fire just being sustained by itself cannot be upheld. And therefore, Nagarjuna and later Nishitani, Nishitani calls his home ground, Nagarjuna called it Shunyata, emptiness, is the idea that fire depends on something else and 
yeah, it's not self-caused, it's not self-sustaining. And actually, this, I guess, brings us the, back to the whole discussion of, of difference. Um, and, I mean, I like that uh, Nishida's notion of identity includes the notion of difference. Um, again, it brings us back to your, your um, argument about what it means to be Japanese. And an, another good example of that is actually um, when you when you when you talked about Buddhism and you said that in in our framework when we essentialize Buddhism, then Buddhism is different from Christianity and is different from Shinto or Confucianism. But when you go to Japan and to China, there you find actually enacted what the Chinese call Sanxiao or the three teachings, is that you have a lot of Japanese who say that they are Buddhist and Shinto, right? So the and and I think that relationship of of people identifying as Buddhist, Shinto, Confucian, and perhaps even Christian, at the same time shows that is of course when you stand in front of the Buddha altar and how is the Buddha done and you're a Buddhist if you go to the shrine you're a Shinto, and so what it means to be Shinto and Buddhist is defined through contrast as a difference, but those differences are not essential because the same person can, can then participate in all those practices which our categories, Buddhism and Shinto, make seem as if they were irreconcilable. Yes, well, Japanese typically describe themselves as mushukyo, or non-religious. And along those lines, the Kyoto school thinkers in general don't share the Western mainstream assumption that there's a clear delineation between philosophy and religion. But the Japanese population, understanding itself as by and large non-religious, are oftentimes Christian when it comes to marriage and wedding ceremonies, Buddhist when it comes to death and funeral ceremonies, and then Shinto when it comes to festivals, rites of passage, or th their view of nature. No, no, that's correct. And um, I think people... Um, oh, what's also interesting, um, when scholars from Europe and the United States came, or Canada, came to Japan in the 60s and 70s of the previous century and tried to figure out the religiousness, so the first question was, are you religious? And that has something to do with the term shukyo, right? Shukyo was a term that was invented by uh, Nishi Amane in the 19th century to translate the word religion, sort of implies an import. So when people say um, they are mushukyo, they are non-religious, what actually that means is that they are, do not subscribe to, to one tradition with one belief in a God and a worship and so forth. But... Again, to go back to those surveys that religious scholars handed out in Japan, so um, people said that they are non-religious, but then they also said they believed, believed in spirits and they believed in life after death and so forth. So they actually listed what we would call religious, right? So in some sense, um, if you want to use that, that dialectical language that, you, that we talked about earlier, they are not religious and therefore they are religious because what is rejected is the notion of religion as something essentially different from everyday than when what is rejected is the notion of traditions that are monoliths, that are 
um, hom homogenous internally and completely different to other completely different from other traditions. You mentioned Nishi Amane, yeah. who coined the term shukyo in Japanese to translate our Western concept of religion. He also coined the term in the late 19th century, tetsugaku, used to translate our concept of philosophy. And he coined this term from the Chinese characters, or kanji, meaning wisdom and learning, yeah. and intended for the word to mean what he described as the study of human nature and the principles of yeah. things. What was Nishi's historical significance in the introduction of Western modes of wisdom and learning into the modern Japanese intellectual milieu? And how did Japanese intellectuals after Nishi in the early decades of the 20th century take up the practice of tetsugaku or philosophy? I mean, that's a really important question. And... For that, we actually need to know a little bit more about the 19th century, about the period called Bakumatsu, right? The, the end of the show, Edo Shogunate. And to cut a long story short, so when the Meiji emperor and the Meiji government took over in the officially the day it is, as you know, um, 1868, then there was the, the opening to european and american ideas and you have a lot of uh, a lot of relatively you have japanese traveling to europe and the united states and to learn about technology to learn about science to learn about academia and so the ideas were were brought back were imported nishida even though he never left japan had an a uh, huge library of books in in European languages, right? So, and in, in that context, um, Nishi Amman actually he he did a tremendous work translating academic categories into in, into Japanese and creating a lot of uh, neologisms, a lot of new um, kanji compounds, character compounds to express what he considered to be external foreign um, concepts. So when he coined the term Tetsugaku um, philosophy, he'd coined it in distinction to Shiso, to thought. And you asked about uh, the, the significance of, of Nishi's work, besides that he just increased the vocabulary, <laughs> academic vocabulary of Japan immensely and actually a lot of those terms are then exported to china and china china imported those but uh, what happens especially with regard to philosophy that even today um, a lot of japanese academics think of tetsugaku as that which is done the analytical uh, the anglo-american philosophy or continental philosophy so tetsugaku is actually um, still by by a lot of japanese seen as denoting Anglo-American and um, continental philosophy. So Japanese, what I would call philosophy, um, or some people in English call it intellectual heritage, um, in, Chap in Japanese is called shiso, is thought. And um, a few years ago, I was invited um, at a conference of the, the Japanese Society of um, Comparative Philosophy, which is called Hikaku Shiso Gakkai actually comparative thought, right? And 
So, and some of my colleagues, Japanese colleagues asked me, so if I think that um, if Dogen is Shizo thought or Tetsugaku philosophy, and I just laughed, I said, for me, it's philosophy. And that's a terminological problem Japanese have to deal with, right? <laughs> because um, the way Nishiyamane defined it was uh, Tetsugaku is made in Europe and uh, in North America, and the rest is Shizo. And coming back to the beginning of our discussion, uh, not to end the conversation, but just to make the connection, is um, again, when we talk about global philosophy, right? So the idea of calling, of, of reserving the term Tetsugaku for, for European and um, uh, continental and Anglo-American philosophy is, is that which I think global philosophy um, undermines and subverts, because now we say that no... Um, just because of that historical coincidence that that European modernism was exported through the in the colonial period, um, we don't have to essentialize that. We don't have to make that the norm. There are um, very important um, intellectual and I would say philosophical achievements all over the world, and also in pre-modern Japan, and. Again, a global philosophy would then use also methods um, created by uh, philosophers such as um, Dogen and Kukai, um, but also Motori Norinaga and um, Okyu Sorai and Hayashi Razan and all those people, right? So there's a whole wealth of, of philosophical methods and terminology that can actually enrich um, the way we have done philosophy in the past in Europe and North America. And I think that's, that's the goal of um, global philosophy. But I understand one could argue that this notion of global philosophy implies a non-essentialist worldview, which not all people will buy. But on the other hand, sort of that, that essentializing of what philosophy is and the essentializing of what traditions are also implies a certain worldview, which not everyone may subscribe to, right? So, so then we have the dilemma how we negotiate um, academic disciplines and conceptual systems that actually imply a certain metaphysical commitment, right? Yes. One of the purposes of this podcast is to de-essentialize what we understand by the practice or discipline of philosophy, which I'm attempting to do by sort of naively posing the question, what is philosophy, and inviting as many perspectives as I can manage to share what they understand philosophy to be. But in the early 20th century, scholars following in the wake of Nishi Amane, who introduced these neologisms, Tetsugaku, philosophy, and Shukyo, religion, but in the wake of Nishi, most prominently Nishida Kitaro, the founder of the Kyoto School, really leaned into this Western learning mentality. Nishida was very learned in the Western traditions and the Western philosophical canon. And he, believe, he I believe, understood himself as being a practitioner of Tetsugaku. Is that accurate to say? No, that's correct. And... Um... Some, some people have argued whether he's a Buddhist philosopher or not, and I don't think he is, even though he's influenced by some Buddhist ideas, because he very clearly 
um, embarks on the Tetsugaku project. He he engages um, continental philosophy on those terms, and obviously with William James also. Um, one Anglo-American philosopher, but mostly in his later life, he engages um, continental philosophers, um, especially um, Hegel and Husserl and Kant, on, on, and neo-Kantian thinkers um, like Cohen, on their terms. So yes, um, he completely bought into that that project of Tetsugaku of doing philosophy European or North American style. But the difference is that he actually, he, he was trained in classical Chinese. And he also was interested, he hung out with Suzuki a lot, so he was interested in Buddhism. He practiced Zen Buddhism. Um, his, his, his mother was a devout Pure Land Buddhist. So even though he did that practice, you can see the influence of um, all those other practices and um, philosophies and methods of thinking coming in into his work so that i think what makes him so really exciting is that that he um again caught in his time but he already started um, building bridges that um i think are inspiration even today for people and to sort of let the way towards a global philosophy absolutely and, and the same is true of the other cornerstone of the kyoto school tanabe hajime who actually studied with Heidegger in the early 1920s. And in fact, upon returning to Japan in 1924, was the first scholar in the world to write an article on Heidegger's thought. Similarly, in the second generation of the Kyoto school, Nishida's student, Keiji Nishitani, from whom I read earlier, also studied with Heidegger between 1937 and 1939, and was frequently invited over to Heidegger's home for conversations on Zen Buddhism and one has to suppose philosophy generally. That's correct. So you, there you have global philosophy in action. I mean, for me, global philosophy is chump is 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 getting out of the idea that there are separate, um, discrete um, traditions that don't talk to each other. Right. So once you go in and out and start the conversation, you are starting to begin um, global philosophy. And before I talk about Tanabe, um, um, one of in, in his later life, one of his central ideas for Nishida was Sekai Teki Sekai, which literally means worldly world. But I think this is this is the idea of a world that's not just world as a as a um, geographic or physical um, entity, but the world actually as a cultural entity. And it has to be global, right? Right. So the world itself has to become global, right? And so I think he had a vision of a philosophy that transcends traditions. And when he talks about the many and the one and tries to translate that into political philosophy, I think he may not have been his most successful part of his work, but he's, he's trying to engage what we now call global philosophy. And his, one of his disciples, Mutai Risaku, actually then develops a notion of, I would say, cosmopolitanism out of Nishida's and Tanabe's um, vocabulary. And I think also Tanabe is, is very important um, with his um, philosophy of metanoetics, where, where he starts to cross... Um, um, where he uses actually religious ideas to drive his philosophical method, right? 
um, when he says philosophy has to be self-critical, has to be an act of conversion of self-analysis. And but also um, with his interaction with 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 Heidegger, and um, I mean, he, um, when he was the head of the philosophy department, so there were more students in Germany than to Nishida's time, right? So he not necessarily managed, but he was much more involved in that exchange with German and French philosophy at the time. Yes, and they were very much involved in that exchange while simultaneously being rooted, as you mentioned, in the Chinese classics. I wanted to make a note of connection between what we've been discussing in terms of the title of this episode, Philosophies of Nothingness, and specifically Japanese Buddhist philosophies of nothingness, but I wanted to note a point of connection between these Buddhist philosophies of nothingness and Taoism. And to make this connection, I prepared a very nice passage, not as long as the one from before, from a wonderful little book, Zen Action, Zen Person by Thomas Kosselis. And this book is, by the way, an excellent introduction to the topic of Japanese Buddhist philosophy. But Kassilis makes the historical connection between Chan Buddhism, as it was known in China from around the 6th century onward, what is known now around the world as Zen Buddhism. Kassilis makes this historical connection of Chan Buddhism with Taoism. He cites 4th century Chinese Taoist Xuanzi, who was active during the Warring States period, a period corresponding to the summit of Chinese philosophy, who writes the following about nothingness. Bright dazzlement asked non-existence. Sir, do you exist or do you not exist? Unable to obtain any answer, bright dazzlement stared intently at the other's face and form. All was vacuity and blankness. He stared all day, but could see nothing. Listened, but could hear no sound. Stretched out his hand, but grasped nothing. Perfect, exclaimed Bright Dazzlement. Who can reach such perfection? I can conceive of the existence of non-existence, but not of the non-existence of non-existence. How could I ever reach such perfection? Commenting on this passage, uh, Kassilis points out that non-being or nothingness is taken as the equivalent of the absolute Tao, which is more than the mere opposite of being. Rather, it is taken to be ontologically prior to being. And so we see that the Chinese Taoists before the Zen Buddhists were already thinking in terms of what we might call a pre-ontology of non-being or nothingness. When you asked the question, I, I wanted to point to that chapter three of Kasulis's and Actions in Person because I think he really brings out that that connection between um, Zen Buddhism and certain strands of Taoism. And I really liked the, the passage that you read. Um, quick footnotes: It Shuangzi um, was fourth century before Common Era, right? And um, but you also can find that in, in the Tao Te Ching, which is attributed to, to Lao Tzu, um, the first line says the Tao that can be Tao is not the eternal Tao, that it actually um, 
starts with two DAOs, the one that's relative to, to being, but the one that is beyond the distinction between being and non-being, right? So you have, you, you have those ideals as a, a strong um, strain already in Taoism. And I think in the, in the Tang Dynasty, um, you, you have that, that the mutual influence between the emerging Zen Buddhist tradition and Taoism in terms of philosophical views with the focus on the the nothingness that encompasses both being and non-being, but also in terms of methods, sort of that the the dialogues that Trunkse especially uses in in his in in the writing in in the book called Trunkse, right? Um, sort of are reflected in some of the Zen dialogues that slowly form in the Tang dynasty and then are canonized in the Song dynasty later. So there, there are similarities, not only in philosophy, um, but also in, in, in method and in linguistic strategies. Um, so that exchange, I think, was very important for both. And, and, and yeah. Yes, uh, speaking of the Tao, you write in the introduction to the Tao Companion to Japanese Buddhist Philosophy, that the invitation to edit the volume was an especially exciting prospect because the visibility of the fields of Japanese philosophy and Buddhist philosophy has, you write, sharply increased in recent years. What are some of the variables at play in the world today, and in academia in particular, that may be contributing to this sharp increase? That's a good question, and I don't know if... um that may not be better answered by a historian. <laughs> I mean, there, there, I think there are a couple of features. I mean, the first thing is that um, through, in, through the, the globalization, through um, technology, that uh, we can instantaneously share things um, through the internet um, from all places in the world. So we see there's much more exchange and and between people, but then it's also natural that there's also um, more exchange between between philosophical disciplines, between philosophical tradition. Also, a, a second thing is sort of, in, in general, a second um, factor in general is the, the post-colonial um, movement, the post-colonial period that we are in, that that people realize that colonialism was not only a political enterprise, it was also a cultural enterprise, it was also a philosophical enterprise. And then with countries finding their voices, um, their own voices becoming independent, also um, philosophical practices and methods find their own voices again and are fortunately more and more invited to to conference if you want to speak practically about sort of the discourses and 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 then again the the electronic interconnectedness makes it makes it um much easier to to do that 20 years ago you even even 10 15 years ago we will physically had to go to conferences to meet people from other from other um parts of the world from other traditions, from other cultures, worlds uh, trained in other methods. So there was a physical mobility necessary. And now, and especially sort of 
the current pandemic that forced us to stay at home and forced us to put a lot of conferences online now has made it possible for us to have that exchange. We, we now can, um, I'm now organizing a workshop with people from Australia and Europe and Africa and, and the Americas participating at the same time. As long as someone wakes up at midnight, it works, right? So technologically, it's practical. It's, 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 it's possible. It's just um, getting the times um, in our life um, organized. That's the only problem these days. Yes, as I mentioned before we started recording, I know what's going on at the European Network of Japanese Philosophies annual conferences because they're filmed and then posted for the public on YouTube. So, so I think that's one, but there's a, there's a third factor, and the third factor is that um, after the... I mean, already before the Second World War, through um, movement of people through immigrations, you have religious traditions being transplanted but the, what what happens is that that right after the uh, that's starting with after the second world war you have a lot more zen buddhist practitioners in the americas i have a good friend who is a uh zen uh, zen buddhist priest in in campinas in brazil another friend who 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 has his own Send group in, in Amsterdam. So, because um, religions, um, various traditions are now much more visible and much more present. So, it's also firstly the interest is there, like what does my neighbor practice? <laughs> sort of trying to figure out what, what they do, what their holidays are, what they believe. But then also just democratically right to 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 listen to other people's opinion and then say oh we have more in common than we thought or we can learn from them they can learn from us and all of a sudden you have a multilateral dialogue that that before that 100 200 years ago wasn't possible right well one of the things nishida said that he hoped to facilitate was a depth encounter yeah, yeah. between different cultural traditions and he, he certainly succeeded in that i would say well, that that's correct, and it starts with saying, "Oh, look, that's interesting." And then, what what do they do? What do they believe? And then, why do they believe that? And then you get into the methodological questions and try to figure out how discourses develop, and yeah, realize that your way of thinking that you always took for granted may not be the only one in the world. But that requires a kind of learning by becoming. And this is actually another key methodological point that is prominent throughout much of Kyoto School philosophy, and that is that learning doesn't occur as an exchange of information from one brain to another. Rather, it's an existentially engaged process. It's a practice, and one that entails, importantly, an element of self-loss. As Dogen puts it, dropping off the body-mind, or as Nishitani puts it in The Self-Overcoming of Nihilism, becoming a question mark, standing over a void. That's correct. That I mean, the Buddhist tradition, the Kyoto School philosophers, and uh, um, emphasize that, that learning is, is not purely intellectual. The learning is existential, it's, it's somatic, right? It's, 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 it's bodily. And... And then when you do that, as you said, um, you mentioned about selfless, right? <laughs> so obviously the concept of selflessness is, is rather central to, 
to the Buddhist tradition, but also to the Kyoto School. So this is then a, becomes a central feature of opening oneself up to um, other traditions, to other people. To give a completely random example, as there is the movie Radcliffe about um, the beginning. It's a I don't know much you're familiar with Chinese history. It's the based on the book The Romans of the Three Kingdoms, um, the beginning of the Three Kingdom period after the Han Dynasty fell apart. And in that movie, which is completely mythical and 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 fi uh, fictional, um, the two people from the opposite camps are talking to each other and having a tea ceremony, and the the woman who makes the tea pours in the tea and the tea overflows and then the, the, the general of the other army says, no, no, it's, it's enough. Why are you pouring so much? And she says, there's an image of you. You are full of yourself. You don't have space for others. And of course, the implication is once we lose ourselves, then there's space for alterity. There's space for other cultures, for other people. So, Professor, I have one final question for you here, and that is, what is the relevance of Japanese Buddhist philosophy for humanity in the 21st century? That's a good, very good question. Um, I think there are two basic answers to that. The first one is just is the, just generally what we do in academia is to learn about other traditions, to learn about other cultures in order to learn about humanity, right? And if you want, so there's the... Um, imperative of education and there's the imperative of learning about humans humanity um, i would actually push that a little bit further um, and um, using the the kind of inf philosophies that i'm influenced been uh, influenced by like dogen to say that um, if, if he uses this idea of expression in which uh, Buddha nature is expressed in individual, but also all the other individuals are expressed in the individual. Then uh, the phrase that I always use that that humanity or Buddha nature is expressed fully in each individual, but not completely. To have a complete expression of humanity, we need an infinite number of expressions, and that means is we have to learn about not just one religious tradition, one philosophical tradition, one culture, but about as many as possible and learning in the sense as we just talked about, um, inactive learning, embodied learning. That's why my college actually emphasizes study abroad a lot. The second thing that I think we can learn um, from Japanese Buddhist philosophy is, is I think that non-essentialism. Um, a lot of the postmodern philosophies and a lot of um, Philosophies that deal with with um, trying to to negotiate and cure all the the problems that come with identity politics that we see within the political realm today. Um, a lot of postmodern philosophies have a really good um, approach, sort of practically and politically, how to do that, but they do imply non-essentialism, and this non-essentialism has been developed stronger than in any other traditions within the in the Buddhist philosophical tradition. And what um, again, what makes the Kyoto School so relevant is that they started translating that um, pretty early, a um, hundred years ago, right? Starting to translate that into um, academic philosophical discourse. So what I think, um, even going back to Dogen, but especially with the Kyoto School, what that philosophy can contribute 
to the contemporary global philosophical discourse is a robust um, non-essentialist philosophy that allows for um, multiculturalism, that allows for religious diversity, and that allows for a global multicultural philosophy. I agree with you 100% and have been very much inspired by this conversation to continue my studies of Japanese Buddhist philosophy and other philosophies around the world. Also, we'll post some resources for our audience in the video description if you're listening on YouTube. But Professor, wow. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much. And I have to say, I'm really impressed how prepared you are um, that we could have a really substantial and um, exciting conversation on that topic. If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to engage the topic in more depth, be sure to sign up for our free weekend seminar starting Saturday, September 5th. The seminar will be held online over a period of 14 weeks and is open to anyone. Just email philosophyforthepeople at gmail.com and you will be automatically registered to receive updates and weekly invitations to our online classroom. Again, that's starting September 5th. This has been a solid work production. Solid work. Solid work. Uh, solid work. Hey, solid work.